All right, thanks, guys. Uh, at this point, I think the kids are going to head out to do practice for our Christmas Eve service, which, by the way, is on Christmas Eve, and uh, it's going to be a really, you know, go figure, right? Uh, it's going to be a really good service. Uh, kids going to have a great program, and uh, we'll have a short gospel message. So really encourage you guys to come to that as well. As the kids are heading out, I'd invite all of you to turn with me um, to the last chapter of the book of Job, uh, chapter 42 in the book of Job is where we will be this morning, and starting in verse 7. Uh, if you have been with us um, at all this fall, we have been going through a book of the Bible by the name of Job. Uh, it's self-titled uh, by uh, the guy who's the main character in the book of Job. And we have uh, been walking through the trials and the hardships of Job, and we have seen all sorts of things. Uh, we have seen Job suffer uh, unjustly uh, by God's permission. We have seen his friends uh, come and accuse him of all sorts of things that he didn't do. Uh, we have seen his wife tell him to curse God and die. Uh, we have seen him finally get a chance to go face-to-face with God himself. We have seen Job uh, retract from his uh, accusation that God is unjust, and we have seen him pull off his uh, desire, take it off the table uh, to put God on the stand uh, on trial. And so uh, Job... uh, Last week we saw God speak to Job and we saw Job uh, say enough is enough. Not only does he cover his mouth and say, um, I've said too much, but we see that Job uh, finally repents. He repents of his pride and he retracts uh, his accusations against God and we see that the revelation that God has given him of who he was and how he is good and sovereign and just and he knows what he's doing and that is sufficient for Job. And so we come now to the end of the book. And so part nine, uh, which will be our second to last sermon on the book of Job, but we will wrap up the book of Job this morning uh, as far as the text is concerned. Part nine, Job's restoration. And so we will see uh, the restoration of Job. I think we probably come to the part of the text and the part of the story that we've all been looking forward to. Uh, Not only because it's the end, hopefully, uh, but uh, we're going to see how the story uh, ends up. So if you would uh, bow with me, and we'll pray one more time, and then we'll jump in to this last bit of a wonderful book in Job. Father, thank you for this text. I pray now, Father, that you would calm our hearts and our minds. Father, that uh, that which is uh, distracting to us, that which is on our minds, that which we are concerned about, uh, we would cast those cares and those burdens on you uh, because you care for us. I pray that your spirit would come and give us focus. Spirit, would you come and help us to see, help us to hear, help our hearts to be soft before you, that we would receive um, your holy and perfect word that you have preserved for us. Spirit, we ask also that you would come and speak through me, uh, that what I would say would be accurate and true, um, that you would come and help me to speak uh, uh, powerfully. Uh, Spirit, if you're not here among us, changing us by your word, um, then we might as well go home. And so would you come and would you use me to do this? We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think most of us, for the most part, love stories with happy endings. Uh, There are a few of us um, who can be weird from time to time, who like tragedies, who like it when the story ends on a uh, difficult note. But I think for the most part, 
all of us deep down inside love stories that have happy endings. In fact, uh, when we were children growing up, if your mom or your dad or maybe a sibling uh, told you stories growing up, uh, they all began and they all ended uh, very similarly. Uh, They began saying, once upon a time, right? Once upon a time. And if it was a good story, we really longed to hear these six words. And they lived happily ever after. You know, a good story ends, in my opinion, happily ever after. And so this morning, we're going to see the ending of our story. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how will it end? Uh, Will the book of Job be a happily ever after a story, or will it be a tragedy in which uh, the main character ends dishappy, uh, uh, unsatisfied, and poorly? Um, this morning, what we're going to find out is that Job's story does end, for the most part, um, happily ever after. And so we will get a sense of conclusion, we'll get a sense of finality, if you will, as we conclude the, the story of Job. Um, I find it interesting as I began and as I read and as I've been studying and we've been going uh, through this book together, it it has been one bad thing after the other for the most part uh, for Job. And I think um, after a while, a part of us just wants there to be redemption. You know, a part of us in, inside of us longs for things to end up okay. Um, over the, over the holiday, I went with my brother-in-law, um, to see a new movie. I believe it was called The, the Last Three Days. Has anyone ever heard of that movie out? The Last Three Days. Um, it's a, it's a, the, the main character is Russell Crowe. And uh, there is a cameo by Liam Nielsen, right? Liam Nielsen uh, as well. Um, But it's mostly about uh, Russell Crowe. To make a long story short, and I'll try not to spoil what's going on, um, but it's a story about a a husband and and a father whose wife is uh, accused and is put in jail for a murder that she did, or maybe she didn't. I'll let you watch the movie. uh, Commit. And the whole story is, is the struggle for him to attempt to find a freedom and justice for his wife. I won't tell you what he does because I don't want to ruin it, but it's one of those movies, and I don't know if you've ever seen a movie like this. I'm sure you have. Uh, my wife thinks that Finding Nemo is like this. It's just one bad thing after the other, after the other. To this day, she won't watch Finding Nemo, and you know, that's okay. I'm like, you don't like Finding Nemo? She's like, it's just one bad thing after the other until the very end. I'm like, well, it ends happily, you know? Um, but, you know, my wife is like that. But I found myself sitting in this movie, and literally, if if it's a two-hour movie, for the first hour and a half, it's like bad thing after bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. And my brother-in-law were actually the only two people in the whole theater, (laughs) which was pretty cool. You know, we could talk and laugh and get up and walk around or whatever. And and, And we were like, man, this is depressing. This really has to end poorly. And I kept saying to him, there's got to be redemption. There's got to be redemption. You know, this has to end happily. This, ha- this better end on a happy note or I'm demanding my money back. Um, and, and I think probably t- to some degree, we felt this way with the book of Job. Uh, things have gotten bad and worse and he struggled and we've been through um, arguments and defenses and we've finally seen Job uh, come face to face with God. And there's something in us, I think, that just longs for a 
a happily ever after. And so let's jump in this morning, and we're going to find out if Job's story ends with a happily ever after. If you're taking notes, we basically have a couple sections, uh, a couple big sections. And so the first section that we're going to talk about, I've entitled Job's Friends. And so in verses 7 through 9, we're going to find out what happens to Job's friends. Remember those three guys? We talked about them a few weeks ago. Uh, They went back and forth for about 27 chapters worth of arguments and back and forth and accusation. You did this. And Job, no, I'm innocent. They said, God is punishing you. No, God is not punishing me. And they went back and forth, and it was left unresolved. God got his uh, day with Job, and Job got his day in, in court, so to speak, with God. And there was resolution there. But what about the friends? Well, in verses 7 through 9, we will find out about Job's friends. Uh, Secondly, in verses 10 through 17, to the end of the book, we'll look at Job's fortunes. We'll look at Job's fortunes. And so, Job's friends and Job's fortunes. And so, let's begin by reading the text together, uh, starting in verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer, uh, his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Verse 9, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now verse 9, so Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And so if we can jump back to verse 7, we have... uh, what I would call the restoration of Job's friends. We have seen Job uh, have his moment with God. He has uh, endured and enjoyed, I think, to some degree, uh, his conversation with God. And now God turns to address the friends. Uh, I want to make a couple observations here, actually several observations about the text. And so let's walk through it together. The first thing that I want to say, the first observation, is that most likely Job's friends heard God's speech as well. This is a bit of an inference. It it doesn't say this explicitly, but I get the impression that, uh, remember what had happened. There was a storm brewing, and as the storm came in above Job and his friends, there was lightning. The text literally says out out of a storm or out of a whirlwind that God spoke to Job. And then verse 7 said, after the Lord had spoken these things to Job, then he begins to speak to the friends. It's my impression that Job's friends heard the words of God to Job. It's my impression that they heard exactly what God had to say to Job. And can you imagine with me what that must have been like? Remember, they accused Job of wrongdoing. They said, Job, you are suffering because you have sinned and you have done what is wrong. Can you imagine with me as the wind was swirling about and as their beard was going left and right from the wind and as their garments were soaked with rain from the whirlwind or the storm and and as they heard the words of the Lord, as God spoke the words to Job, I believe those words to Job from God pierced their soul as well because it wasn't what they expected to hear from God. What they expected to hear from God was what, what they had been saying to Job that he had done wrong, that he needed to repent, that he needed to turn. And what they got was 
Job, look at what I've made. Look at the stars. Look at the sun. Look at the moon. Look at all of these animals. Look at the hippo. Look at the alligator. And I think it began to dawn on them, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, we're wrong. (laughs) We haven't been speaking rightly. We've been accusing and we've been thinking. And uh (laughs) uh-oh, we're not right. Secondly, notice that God spoke to Eliphaz Specifically, Did you see that? He spoke to Elevaz specifically, and I think that's for several reason, uh, reasons. Uh, first of all, he was the oldest because he spoke first. So he was the oldest. He was the ringleader. And I think also this comes into play. Remember when they began to accuse him of very specific sins. In fact, they just made them up. It was Eliphaz. It was Eliphaz who was the one making up sins that Job had committed. And so God calls out, Eliphaz as the ringleader, specifically. Uh, a third observation. Notice the reason for God's anger with them. Did you notice that? God tells them specifically why it was that his anger was kindled against them. And it was because they had not done what? They had not spoken what was right about God. Remember, they said, as we've said before, all suffering is due to sin. Job is suffering, therefore he has sinned. He has done something wrong. That was their reason for God. And I think in doing so, they limited God's sovereignty. I think by doing so, they didn't realize that God has other purposes, other reasons for allowing suffering other than just for punishing him. And so God did not like that they were not speaking rightly about him. And by the way, this is an aside. This shows how very important it is how we speak about God, what we say about God, what we attribute to God. God takes that very, very seriously, that we, the best we can, understand him and speak and represent him well. Fourth, did you notice the repetition in the verse? My servant, my servant. Notice this in verse 7. It's four times. For you have not spoken what is right of me as my servant Job has. And he says this, my servant Job, my servant Job, my servant Job, four times. Now why does he do that? Why does he want them and Job to know that he is his servant again? Well, I think it's because it's indicating to us that Job has been now restored in his relationship with God. He is once again, as he was, God's servant. Things are right again, if you will. Fifth, uh, notice this. This I find most intriguing. Uh, Notice what God said. God used Job as a mediator between he and his friends. Did you notice that? Notice again. Let's read again uh, verse, uh, let's see. Let's read again verse 8, I believe. I can find it in my Bible. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. And offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. And so notice what God did not do. He inscribed and told them to make a a, a sacrificial offering. To go and to kill these animals so that his wrath would be upon them. The animals that is and not upon his friends. But he didn't say just do it. I mean he very well could have said right. Take these animals and just sacrifice them to me and we'll be okay. But he doesn't. He says, take these animals to Job, right? And then he says, have Job pray for you. Uh, 
Can you imagine what that must have been like for these three friends who were full of accusation to go to Job and say, would you help us kill these animals? Would you pray for us? Because we are not right with God. I think what this text shows us is that God not only cares about us being reconciled to himself, God cares about us being reconciled to one another. God wanted uh, these three friends to be reconciled not only to him via the sacrifice, but they, he wanted them to be reconciled to Job as well. And so he included Job as a mediator to them. Um, notice this also, number six. God showed grace. This is something that I think would be very easy to overlook. God showed grace to these men. Notice that he did not deal with them according to their folly. Did you notice that? He says, so that I don't deal with you according to your folly. That is, so that I don't give to you what you deserve. And what they deserved was some kind of just punishment. But instead of giving them what they deserved, what did he do? He provided a sacrifice. He provided uh, a way out, if you will. And so he says, take the bulls, take the rams, sacrifice them to me so that I can show you grace. Because someone had to pay. Someone had to pay for their sins. Someone had to pay for their folly. And he says, instead of giving you what you deserve, I'm going to give these animals what you deserve. And so there was a sacrifice involved. There was grace shown. And if it's true that Job was the very first book written in the entire Bible, what we have is the demonstration of the need for a sacrifice, the demonstration of God not dealing with people uh, in strict justice, but with grace and providing a substitute. What we have is this looks forward to the Mosaic sacrificial system, and then ultimately it looks forward to guess who? It looks forward to Jesus. It looks forward to the Lamb of God, the perfect spotless Lamb of God who died, who was slaughtered, who paid for our sins so that we can be reconciled with God. Do you see that? And so here we see that God is demonstrating grace. There is a sacrifice offered and it points us ultimately to Jesus, the one who paid the penalty, the sacrificial lamb. And so I want to ask you this morning if you have accepted that. I want to ask you this morning if you have met and personally trusted in Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice who was perfect and without blemish, who took our sins upon him on the cross so that by faith, by simply receiving the gift of forgiveness, what he has done for us personally, that we can be forgiven and changed and made new people by faith alone. And so we see that even in the book of Job, it points us to the person of Jesus the seventh observation I want to make is, is this. Job, I believe, forgave his friends. I believe that Job forgave his friends. The text indicates to us, the very last verse, if we can uh, skip ahead here to verse 9. The text indicated to us that these three men did exactly what God told them to do. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they did what the Lord had told them, and they went to Job, and at, at that point, I suppose Job had an option. I suppose that he could have said, no, I'm not going to do this for you. I'm not going to help you sacrifice these animals. I'm not going to pray for you. I'm not going to be your intercessor. Although having come face to face with God, probably not a good idea. Uh, but, but he did that. He accepted them and he was their mediator. And I believe in doing so, 
that Job forgave them, that he was reconciled to his friends. And so in verses 7 through 9, we see that Job's friends are not let off the hook. They are corrected by God, but there is grace shown. There is a sacrifice offered, and there is reconciliation. They, just like Job was, were reconciled to God. They were made right with God again. And not only that, but I believe they were made right with Job. And so we have seen uh, Job's friends. Now we'll turn to Job's fortunes. Now we'll turn to Job's fortunes in verses 10 through 17. Again, Job was used as an instrument of reconciliation, and now God is going to go and restore not only his friends, but he's going to restore basically all of Job's fortune. And so let's read this together, and then what we'll see is there are basically four blessings. There are four things that God restored to Job. And so let's read this together, verses 10 through 17, as the book ends. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came uh, to him all of his brothers and his sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted, comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring." Talk about that in a second. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. In case, you know, you're really looking for a good girl's name. <laughs> That's a good idea, Shelley, you think? Okay. Verse 15, And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. And thus is our happily ever after with Job. Uh, Let's look at a few things. Four things, I think, four blessings that the Lord restores. First of all, I believe that the Lord restored his health. Um, It's not specifically mentioned that he restores his health, but as you read it, it seems to indicate that the disease that Job was suffering with, remember the boils and the itching and the high fever and the sleeplessness and the lack of hunger, it, it seems to me, as the story is painted here, that at some point that goes away. Um, I don't know when it happened. It doesn't specifically say. Um, In verse 10, it says the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Um, I believe a part of that was his health. Uh, In my mind's eye, uh, this is a bit speculative, but in my mind's eye, I can see it happening this way. I can see Job... um, kneeling down with his friends as they are praying uh, to God for forgiveness. And he is praying over them and he still is itching and oozing and hurting. And as he prays for them, uh, he says his final amen and he stands up and with the, the smell of fresh blood still in the air from the sacrifice, he looks up and he notices that the itching, uh, the boil that was oozing on his neck is not hurting as much. And, it, and he puts his, his hand to his neck and he notices that it's not there anymore 
anymore. And he, 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 he then looks at his friends and they're staring with wide eyes. And as he looks down, almost as in a movie, uh, we see he, him being heal, healed and his boils go away and he is restored. Uh, again, it doesn't say that that's what happened, but I believe that the Lord restored his health. Uh, secondly, it says that he restored his relationships. Notice in verse 11. This is kind of puzzling to me. I don't know if it is to you. Uh, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house. And it says that they showed sympathy to him, and they comforted him. And I don't know about you, but I I kind of think, where were you before? (laughs) You know? I'm like, that's nice. He's rich and you know it's not but he's better and and now you come you know where were you in the midst of the storm that's how my mind thinks the text doesn't say all it indicates is that he um, somehow is restored in his relationships uh, somehow things are okay um, notice a few interesting things here uh, eating together it says that they ate a meal together um, in that culture and in Jewish culture even up until this day I believe um, eating a meal together was, was not just for the sake of filling your stomach with food if you were to eat a meal with someone it indicated your fellowship with them it indicated that you accepted them that you were in right relationship with them and so they ate a meal they were restored um, notice also uh, what it says They showed him sympathy, they comforted him, uh, and it says that they each gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Um, Not exactly sure, maybe that's, maybe they were housewarming presents, you know, maybe his business was starting to pick up and he had a housewarming party. Uh, Most likely this is just uh, a gift of them uh, helping him get back on his feet. That's what most people believe and I think that they came and they wanted to help him get started again. He had lost everything and I think as we read the text it indicates that his Uh, possessions kind of grew, you know, it was a progressive thing, it didn't just, oh, wait, there are, you know, a hundred, a thousand female donkeys, and boom, 14,000 sheep, I think it was a progressive thing, and I think what we see here is they wanted to be gracious to him monetarily, and so they gave him gifts, so I think his health is restored, his relationships are restored, Uh, finally his wealth is restored, verses 12 through 15. I mean, we read this already, but basically what he had before, everything he had before was doubled. And so the Lord blessed him tremendously. Uh, all of his wealth was restored, uh, doubled what he had been given. Obviously, he had lost 10 adult children. 10 adult, adult children had, uh, had, had died. You can't replace a child, obviously, but the Lord in his grace uh, granted him 10 more children. Um, and so I can imagine, um, you know, it playing out uh, like this, that one morning his wife meets him at the breakfast table and he's eating his eggs or goat milk or whatever it was that they were eating and she comes to him and she smiles and she says, honey, guess what? And he looks at her and he says, what? He says, we're going to have a baby. And he says, okay, here we go, you know. And that happened not once, not twice, not three times. Ten times this happens. Uh, You figure maybe 20 years, right, to have Ten babies, roughly. Um, And so the Lord uh, was gracious in restoring his wealth, uh, giving him additional children. Finally, in verses 16 through 17, the Lord restored his future. That's how I would deem it. The The Lord restored his future. Let's read that one more time. Verse 16. 
And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons, one generation, and his sons, sons, two generations, all the way down to four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. And so the Lord restored the future of Job. Uh, Jewish, Jewish tradition uh, says that Job was 70 years old when this trial happened. And so we don't know for sure, but if he was 70 years old, then he had an additional 140 years. Uh, and so that, I think, if I can add right, is 210 years, right? That's old. I mean, talk about full of days. He is full of days. Long life. And if that's the case, then it would indicate that everything was doubled. He had 10 additional children and even his age. He was 70, was doubled. And so the Lord, uh, the point of this passage is that the Lord is restoring his blessings. Remember back at the very beginning when we heard uh, the story of Job's character, there was every indication that God was blessing this man in this family. What this epilogue is intended to show is that God was doing that again. God was blessing him even more, even more than what he does. Here, I, I think there is a, um, a warning that needs to be heeded before we make applications. And the warning is this. Uh, John Hartley, a, a commentator, says this, and I, I think it's right, because we can, I think, uh, wrongly presume that Job repents and begins to get right with God again, and therefore God decides to bless him because of what he had done. John Hartley says this, while the dialogue, that is all that we've seen before, while the dialogue established the position that suffering does not necessarily imply sin, the epilogue, what we've just read, the epilogue recounts Job's great prosperity as God's free gift as God's free gift, not as a reward earned for his faithful bearing of suffering. In the framework of the whole book, God is the giver of life and blessings, not a capricious tyrant who takes pleasure in the suffering of those who serve him merely to test their loyalty. And he concludes by saying this, God may withdraw his favor for a season, but his love is for a lifetime. And I think that that is a very good warning to us all. And so applications, as we uh, get ready to end, a couple applications, and then we're going to finish up uh, by hearing uh, uh, the poetry of John Piper. We've heard that before, and John Piper is going to wrap this story up, maybe put some flesh and, and bone on it. But a, a couple applications. And so if you're taking notes, write these two things down. Number one, we can trust God to write the final chapter in our story. We can trust God <clears throat> to write the final chapter in our story. I think it's very easy, and I think we can misapply this text if we see, oh, well, God blessed Job. He went through the trial, and then he blessed him, even doubly more so. Things ended on an upper note, so that means that God's going to do it for me as well. Well, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that God is the one who writes the final chapter. God is the one who writes the ending, who sovereignly rules over our life. Warren Wearsby, a, a wonderful commentator, says it this way, and I think he nails it. We must not misinterpret this final chap chapter and, and conclude that every trial will end with all problems solved, all, all hard feelings forgiven, and everyone living happily ever after, after. It just doesn't always work that way. And then pay attention to this. 
This chapter assures us that no matter what happens to us, God always writes the last chapter. And so I don't know where you are in life. I don't know if you're on the front end of blessings in Job chapter 1 and God is blessing you tremendously and all is fine and all is hunky-dory. Maybe you're in the midst of the storm like Job was and you are enduring uh, all sorts of things. Or maybe you have endured the trial and maybe God has brought you back again. Wherever you are, wherever your story is in this moment, what we learn from the tail end of Job is this. God writes the final chapter. He writes the final chapter in our stories and we can trust him to do that. And so whether it's good or whether it's bad, whether it's happily ever after or not, we can trust that he knows what he's doing and he has our good and his glory in mind and we can trust him to write the end of the story for me and for you. Number two, second application. We can live a fulfilled life We can live a fulfilled life never knowing the reason behind our suffering. We can live full of joy and peace and right relationship with God and happiness never knowing the reason behind our suffering. I think this is the thing that gets me the most. We're done with the book of Job. There are no more verses to be read and there are no more chapters to be analyzed. And in the midst of it, Job, notice, notice what it says. He had a full life. He died an old man. Notice this final term, full of days, full of days. When you do a study on that word, full of days, it doesn't just indicate merely that he had a long life physically, and he did. He lived a long time, but it has the implication that it was a satisfied life. It was a good life, spiritually, in, in every way, emotionally. He was healthy. He was right. And so from this, what I gather is that we can have that kind of life. We can be satisfied and have peace and have joy and serve the Lord and be happy without ever knowing the cause of what happens in our life, without ever knowing why God allowed this or that or the other to happen. Because we've read all of the chapters. There are no more verses to read. And we never once read God's explanation, did we? We never once read that God communicated to Job his conversation with Satan and what was going on and what the purpose of it all was. And so Job, for all of those 140 years after the event, I mean, think about it, 140 years of not knowing, of not having an answer, of not having an explanation as to why what happened, happened. And yet, it was okay. It was okay. He was satisfied and he was content. And so, questions that we need to ask ourselves is, do we need an explanation from God to follow God? I mean, do we need an explanation from God to follow him? Do we need answers to be fulfilled? Will we ever be content if we don't know the reason why? Can you come face to face with God as Job did? Can you come face to face with who he is and let that be enough? I want to end with an illustration and then we'll read uh, the Piper poem. Uh, many of you may be familiar with uh, the, the person by the name of Fanny Crosby. Familiar? Fanny Crosby? Fanny Crosby was an 18th century poet, and she was also, in fact, probably most notably known uh, for being a hymn writer. In fact, she wrote several 
hundreds, if, if not thousands, of hymns during her lifetime. Uh, in fact, let me read to you some of the hymns that she, she wrote. I think you'll be familiar with some of them. <clears throat> All the way my Savior leads me, blessed assurance, praise him, praise him, and to God be the glory. These are wonderful hymns that we have sung for generations. Um, wonderful, marvelous hymns. But the one thing that I didn't know about Fanny Crosby until I started to study a little bit is that from six weeks old, she was blind. From six weeks old, she was blind. And that's not really the gist of it. She was blind because there was a mistreatment of an inflamed eyes. As you read the story, what you come to find out is that when she was uh, that age, um, her mother uh, called the doctor. She was having eyes, eye difficulty, nothing too major. And the doctor of the town apparently was not there, and someone filled in for him, posing to be a doctor, and was not a doctor, and gave a prescription or, or something, you know, did something to her eyes that caused her to go blind. You know, I think of her, and I think if anyone has a reason, if anyone has a reason to want to know the reason for God allowing that, if anyone wants to demand to know why God allowed that, if anyone could be bitter, if anyone could not live a satisfied and joyful life, you know, that would be her. That would be her. And yet she has written these marvelous hymns. And and notice uh, what she said once about her blindness. It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all of my life. And I thank him for the dispensation, which is the time. If perfect earthly sight were offered to me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not, and here's the reason, I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. A marvelous statement from a woman who, much like Job, did not have an answer, did not have a reason, uh, could very well question God. And yet, uh, she lived a fulfilled life, not knowing the reason behind her suffering. And so at this point, I'm going to ask uh, Martha, she's back there. We're going to read through this last little bit of Job. We have been hearing the book of Job from the poetic and creative and biblically informed mind of John Piper. And so we're going to conclude that, and uh, then we'll be done. The deep blue sky above the land of Uz was cloudless. Stillness spanned the earth with peace as if there had been... bloody every morning sky but now a calm as far as I could see a silent azure pool of massive space above the cool and restful evening without pain or any red and boding stain up bleeding from the sutures of the distant soil and sky above the land of us Job felt the breeze against his healthy skin to seize this moment would I think be here an ample recompense one year of misery he thought it is not too long to see a heaven what I've seen and watch the power to heal and loving feel what I now feel. Unless perhaps six years have made this recollected pain to fade and turn the memory of dread into a noble cause and shred the fabric of reality and truth beyond identity. 
He looked across the fields of wheat and endless rolling hills of sweet, green pasture lands for all his herds and flocks and thought, There are no words to speak the substance of my soul and joy to God, nor yet extol his worth above the vast rebirth of all my dreams. No dancing mirth can suit or satisfy the kind of tearful pleasure that I find when I recall what I have lost by his decree and what it cost to see my God. He looked down at the glowing little girl who sat before him on the grass, the first child born to Dinah since she nursed the dead. Job wondered if there might be more in years to come, despite the treasure that Jemima was. He'd sometimes walk the hills of us alone and lift his hands and break out singing that the Lord can make a little girl like this from bone and flesh that once could only groan and grieve the loss of every child. The little girl looked up and smiled. What are you thinking, Papa? Job thought for a while, then said, You probe, perhaps, Jemima, where the road is rougher and the mental load too heavy for your little mind. I like it, Papa, when you find a story you can tell about your life. Why were you sick? I doubt that you would understand, he said. Do you, she asked. Your little head may not perhaps grasp all the why, but it may do us good to try. Your daddy once was very rich, and you had three big sisters, which I loved with all of my heart. They died with seven brothers all inside a great big house that fell because a giant wind broke all the laws we thought we knew. How little did we know. And then one day amid the grief I got so sick no one could tell that it was me. I'd done all that I knew to do, but still it came and vexed my soul until I almost lost my faith. Do you think God made you sick? She drew her breath and swallowed hard. I know you'd like to think that there's a foe that hurts and God that heals, and that would not be wrong, but I have sat and pondered months in pain to see if that is true, if misery is Satan's work and happiness is God's. Jemima, we must bless the Lord for all that's good and bad. But, Papa, God's not mean or mad. He's not our enemy. He's kind and gentle, isn't he? Your mind is right, Jemima, but it's small. He's gentle, kind, but that's not all. I have some friends who thought they knew the mind of God and that their view of tenderness exhausted God's and that severity and rods could only be explained with blame to vindicate his holy name. So do you think it was God who made you sick? I think God never laid aside the reins that lie against the neck of Satan nor unfenced his pen to run at liberty, but only by the Lord's decree. So you think God was kind to make you sick, Jemima asked? And take away your health and all your sons and friends and daughters, all the ones you loved? Jemima, what I think is this. The Lord has made me drink the cup of his severity, that he might kindly show to me what I would be when only he remains in my calamity. Unkindly, he has kindly shown that he was not my hope alone. Oh, Papa, do you mean your friends were right? No, no, my child, to cleanse an upright heart of toxin stains with searing irons is not like chains laid on the soul in penalty for guile and crimes no one can see. No, they were wrong, and kindly as the Lord rebuked good Eliphaz, and I have prayed for him, and all is well. You see, their minds were small, and they could not see painful times apart from dark and hidden crimes. Beware, Jemima, God is kind, in ways that will not fit your mind. It's getting late, Jemima. Come, I think I hear the bedtime drum. My little theologian deep, it's time to say good night and sleep. 
But, Papa, please, one more. Would you tell me about the wind that blew, about the whirlwind and the word of God? You told me once you heard the very voice of God. What did he say? He said, There's a giant squid beneath the sea you've never seen, and mountain goats above the green tree line that bring forth kids on cliffs so high and steep that little whiffs of wind could make a human fall. God asked me, Is the wild ox all at your command, and will he stay the night beside your crib and play or work with you on leashes made of hemp? And have the horses brayed at your command, and do you make them leap like locusts? Do they break through shield and chariot because you formed their neck? What ancient laws of flight have you designed for hawks? Have you devised the walls, the way he walks on wind and snatches up his prey in flight? And could you ever play with stars to loose Orion? Seize the distant chains of Pleiades? Where were you, Job, when I, with mirth, the great foundations of the earth, did lay, and all the sons of God rejoiced to watch the formless clod become a habitation of my bride? Did you once broad above the waters and appoint their bounds? And have you joined the king who crowns the mammoth sky with morning light? Come, Job, gird up your feeble might and make your case against the Lord. Do you know where the snow is stored, or how I have made the hail and rain, or how buried seed bears grain, how ravens find their food at night, and lilies clothe themselves with white? And finally, my servant Job, can you draw down and then disrobe Leviathan, the king of all the sons of pride, and in his fall strip off his camouflage of strength, and make him over all the length of earth and heaven to serve the plan of humble righteousness? I can. I make Leviathan my rod, beloved Job, behold your God. And what did you say, Papa, when the Lord was done? I said, Amen, and bowed as low as I could bow. Come here, my lass, I'll show you how. And when she crouched before his feet, he picked her up, and with a sweet and tender grip he said, Watch this, and on her cheek he put a kiss. I hope you've enjoyed the book of Job as much as I have. Uh, Wonderful book. And there are uh, deep minds to pick and to probe with Job. Uh, We may not have all the answers. The book of Job doesn't answer the problem of evil or why suffering exists. Um, But what it does do uh, clearly is give us a picture of who God is. And it gives us a picture of a great and mighty and gracious and sovereign and good and just God. And ultimately, I think that's the point of the book of Job, is we don't need to know why if we know God. Thanks for being here. Next week, we will have a concluding sermon on Job, uh, what Job teaches us about ourselves and God and Jesus. And then we'll get into Christmas stuff. All right, see you guys later.